0: You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio, throwing a brick through the Overton window since 2006. One of the reasons people like this show is you get to hear such a wide variety of perspectives. And one of the perspectives that I make sure to include every now and then is that of the independent minded, truth seeking, truth speaking Muslims who are out there. Tonight, I'm bringing on two of my favorites, who both happen to be Canadian, Zafar Bangash and Eric Wahlberg. If you like hearing views that are suppressed from the mainstream, well, the only way to make sure that this radio show continues is to have a critical mass of subscribers. You can subscribe by way of the subscribe at substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live every night right here on Revolution.Radio, the finest listener-sponsored network for all-out free speech. And you can check out more of my work by way of TruthJihad.com, where people are encouraged to subscribe to this show by way of Substack. You has a okay, has we're getting into our second yet. hour here, and it seems like we have a, a magic way Goodbye. of getting voicemails at the beginning of each of these live shows. And so, if you ever were curious about what the voicemail box uh, greeting sounds like, uh, if you call people like Zafar Bangaj <laughs> or uh, Alan Zabrowski or maybe Eric Wahlberg, then uh, check it out. Listen to the show, and you'll get to find out. I think part of the problem is that many people have these uh, bans on anonymous calls. And I think when we call them from Skype, it shows up as anonymous call. And so that's been the uh, traditional problem there. But hopefully we'll figure out how to overcome it. Uh, Zafar Bangash is, well, he's been an editor at Crescent International for a long time. Crescent is the best Muslim current events magazine. And Zafar has been a hard hitting voice of truth in the Muslim community. For decades. And he has a new article out in the new edition of mm-hmm. Crescent Hello? called uh, Saudi Regime's Arbitrary Restrictions on Hajj and Umrah. It's one of uh, many <laughs> very legitimate criticisms of the Saudi authorities that you can find at Crescent International and everywhere where Muslims are telling the truth about what's really happening in the Muslim Ummah. So, hey, I think we finally got Zafar. Hey, welcome. Asalaamu Alaikum, Zafar Bangash. Good to have you.
1: Walaikum Asalaam, Kevin. Thank you.
0: It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, And congratulations on your ongoing excellent work at Crescent International, including this new article on what the Saudis are doing with these pilgrimages, the Hajj and the Umrah pilgrimages. Uh, It's yet another outrage coming from the uh, masters of Mecca and Medina, who really don't deserve to have that status.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, This is uh, an ongoing problem with the Saudis, uh, that they make these arbitrary decisions uh, regarding uh, one of the most fundamental um, acts of worship in Islam. Uh, For Muslims, uh, obviously, uh, whatever uh, acts of worship they uh, perform, uh, these are uh, articulated and specified uh, in the Quran which is the um, noble book that the Muslims follow. And there are very, very clear uh, instructions in the Quran regarding the performance of Hajj and Umrah. And the Quran is clear. It says anybody who is able to perform Hajj or Umrah, and of course this ability uh, means uh, physical ability, uh, financial ability, uh, the time that the person or persons can allocate, etc. There is absolutely no stipulation of age, there is no stipulation whatsoever of uh, obtaining a visa to perform Hajj and Umrah, and yet that is uh, another restriction that the Saudis have imposed and implemented for many years. Uh, And there are other arbitrary decisions that they have taken. Uh, For instance, uh, they have imposed an arbitrary quota of uh, 1% of the population of each Muslim country. Uh, On that basis, uh, when we look at uh, the population of the Muslim world, which is perhaps something like 1.8 to 2 billion people, Uh, a person would have to live for a 1,000 years to be able to get an opportunity to perform hajj. So these are some of the really, really uh, very, very strange and arbitrary decisions that the Saudis have imposed. Uh, And as uh, we said, the latest is the restriction of age for people that want to perform Umrah. Again, there is absolutely uh, no stipulation for this uh, anywhere. Uh, but regrettably the saudis are indulging in these kinds of things and i think it is important that the muslim world uh, wakes up and take notice of what is going on
0: so why did what was their excuse for this age limit of 18 to 50 years for umrah pilgrims i can see the 50 part people over 50 theoretically might be more in more danger from covid-19 But a 17-year-old is not. Uh, Where did they come up with these
1: numbers? (laughs) Well, completely arbitrarily. I'm not quite sure exactly where they got these numbers from. And um, uh, strangely enough, um, a few days after they imposed uh, this 18 to 50-year age limit, I'm sure there must have been some communication or some concern expressed by some governments. So the Saudis lifted the 50-year age limit. They said uh, people older than that can come, but uh, nobody younger than 18 years of age can come. So even with respect to their so-called concern for COVID, uh, I mentioned so-called because I'm going to uh, explain why I say this. Uh, Even that doesn't make sense because, uh, as you said, uh, People uh, under 18 years of age uh, are likely to be much more healthy than people uh, over the age of 50. Uh, while we are talking about this, we need to keep in mind that uh, since October of 19 uh, of this year, uh, there are concerts going on in Jeddah, which is the gateway for pilgrims to Come for Hajj and Umrah. The vast majority of people. Uh, there have been concerts going on uh, since October the nineteenth, and these concerts will go on till March two thousand wow. and twenty-two. Wow, this, this, this is the, like
0: the Sandy Woodstock, except it lasts for for years.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, and and according to Saudi's own uh, news channels and uh, newspapers. They said that on the first night when the concert opened on October the 19th, 250,000 people attended that opening night. There was, of course, uh, no concern about uh, whether these people are vaccinated. Uh, There was absolutely no restriction about social distancing. And these concerts are going on. In fact, there is a Canadian pop singer, uh, Justin Bieber, uh, who is going to be appearing tomorrow and uh, day after tomorrow. Uh, There are, in fact, uh, appeals to him that he should boycott the Saudis' um, concert because uh, the Saudis uh, have an atrocious human rights record. They have uh, put... thousands of human rights activists in prison. They have been executing people. They have done all kinds of other terrible things. And um, so while there are no restrictions on concerts taking place uh, and no age limit anywhere, uh, yet for religious observances, the Saudis uh, impose these restrictions uh, and prevent uh, people from performing their religious obligations.
0: So the Saudis have no problem with hundreds of thousands of people crowded together to worship a teen idol, uh, which I guess could be a form of idol worship, but they last year they wouldn't let more than 1,000 people to go on Hajj, and now it's restricted to 60,000 uh, people, uh, the 60,000 Saudis. It's almost as if they are trying to stop these religious rituals and they're trying to encourage radically un-islamic pop singer idol worship
1: exactly that's exactly what they are doing Um, and if if one looks at uh, their history uh, it is so incredible that um, back in uh, the late 1920s or early 1920s or 1910s when these people, uh, basically, uh, the founder, the, who's the, the person who's uh, referred to as the founder of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, his name was Abdulaziz Ibn Saud. He used to uh, carry out raids against pilgrims' caravans. So essentially, he was a thief. Uh, he would uh, attack these caravans, uh, rob them of their belongings because. Uh, when we are talking about 100, 110 years ago, uh, the, the mode of transportation was not developed. There were no planes that brought people to uh, to Saudi Arabia, or at, of course, it wasn't called Saudi Arabia at that time. It was basically the the place was called the Hejaz, which was its proper name. It was under the Ottoman uh, Empire, and uh, very often pilgrims uh, would travel for Hajj in caravans. And, of course, they would have their belongings and Abdulaziz and his band of thieves would attack these pilgrims' caravans and rob them, in many instances even kill the pilgrims. So we can see that they have a uh, a very long and gruesome history of uh, attacking even pilgrims, uh, to who are on their way to perform their religious obligations, and of course the you know the Saudis have continued uh, robbing pilgrims because today uh, they charge exorbitant fees, which again is totally against uh, the teachings of Islam because uh, the Quran says that when pilgrims go there that they should be accommodated they should be provided food and shelter and uh, water, rather than charge uh, these exorbitant fees. And the numbers, again, is very, very problematic, because if we draw a parallel or a comparison between another uh, religious observance that takes place uh, in the Muslim world every year, and that is something referred to as the Arbaeen March, which is the 40th day march of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein. Now, every year, something like 20 million people participate in the Arbaeen March. People walk from Najaf to Karbala, which is a distance of about 70 kilometers. And just consider the 20 million people uh, that participate in, in this march. On the way they are provided food, they are provided water, they are provided even mattresses to sleep on. And this is all done totally voluntarily by people themselves, ordinary people in Iraq. So if 20 million people can be accommodated on their march from Najaf to Karbala every year, and there are, of course, uh, medical centers set up along the way, And uh, even when they reach Karbala, again, there are facilities and arrangements made for them. The Saudis aren't capable of uh, managing two million people. So obviously there is something totally lacking in the Saudis and in their uh, management of the affairs of Hajj uh, and Umrah. And they continue to impose these uh, arbitrary uh, restrictions. Uh, because, as you said, they are trying to prevent uh, Muslims from fulfilling their religious obligations, but they are directing them into concerts and other hedonistic uh, activities uh, that the Saudis are promoting uh, in the Arabian Peninsula that they have illegally occupied. So these are issues of concern. And we, of course, in Crescent International have for many decades raised this point and emphasized that the administration of Hajj and Umrah should be taken out of the control of the Saudis because they are incapable. They are making arbitrary decisions. And in any case, uh, Hajj and Umrah are religious obligations that do not belong to the Saudis to decide on as to what they can do. Uh, You know, the fees that they charge for visa and accommodation, etc., it's just like if, let's say, uh, somebody had a place of worship, whether it is a mosque or a church or whatever, and somebody stood outside and said, you can only go in if you pay so much money. Otherwise, you can't go in to perform your uh, worship. I mean, that nobody would accept that. That would be ludicrous. And yet that's precisely what the Saudis are doing and regrettably getting away with it. And I think it's time that the Saudis were called for their un-Islamic uh, conduct and divested of the control of Hajj and Umrah, basically divested of the control of the Hejaz, which is the area where uh, Mecca and Medina are located.
0: Is there any practical way that could be accomplished? Um, clearly, we, you know, we have other Muslim countries in the neighborhood that are much more capable in many respects, but the Saudis have been propped up by the American empire, or we might call it the Anglo-Zionist empire. Uh, and w- would it take a, a major shift in global geopolitics before this could happen? Or w- what's the path to bringing the, the Hijaz back to the Ummah?
1: well there have been uh, many conferences that have been organized in the past and and there are uh, countries uh, whose um, uh, governments and academics and uh, ulama that is religious scholars have raised these concerns and they have called for taking the control of the hijaz out of the hands of the saudis uh, obviously uh, this has not uh, progressed a great deal but i think it is time that uh, this issue uh, is uh, brought to the fore and uh, the affairs of the hijaz are taken out of the hands of there have been uh, you know calls made in the past uh, including in places like uh, turkey uh, iran uh, even certain segments of uh, the population in Pakistan, although I uh, the, regrettably not the majority because the Saudis have completely bought uh, the, uh, the, both the government as well as a large number of the population in Pakistan to their side, although there are significant uh, body of opinion in Pakistan which understands the uh, the, the kind of damage that the Saudis are doing to the hijaz and to the performance of Hajj and Umrah. So there needs to be a, a much more concerted effort made on the part of the Muslims. Uh, the first thing, obviously, is that there should be uh, an understanding and realization that uh, uh, the Muslims uh, perform uh, one ummah, one body. Uh, and if Muslims begin to develop this understanding that these nation states into which they have been divided, and this division, of course, occurred as a result of uh, British and French intrigue, largely in which uh, the Muslims were divided uh, into nation states, uh, almost like cages, uh, in which you know Muslims have been uh, parcelled uh, and and Put into these cages and told that you are now separate from uh, your fellow Muslims somewhere else. Uh, And regrettably, this has uh, caused a lot of damage to the Muslim world uh, over many tens of years. Uh, So, unless and until there is this realization that uh, the Muslims form one body, one ummah, as the Quran states, and that uh, they uh, religious aspects of the Muslims uh, ought to be uh, administered according to the teachings of the Quran and the example of the Prophet of Islam rather than uh, a, a family uh, that is basically uh, completely uh, in illegal occupation of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, that uh, I'm afraid these affairs will continue like this. But I I do see uh, the changes that are coming, uh, the the awareness that is uh, now uh, growing among some segment of the Muslim population, particularly the intelligentsia. And as this awareness increases, uh, then hopefully we can see the day when um, the Saudis would be uh, removed from control of the affairs of Hajj and Umrah Uh, and that uh, these affairs would be in the hands of uh, ulama from all schools of thought in Islam, as well as uh, technically competent Muslims who can administer these affairs properly. And I believe that the Saudis, by their own conduct, are actually uh, pushing this thing in that direction, Uh, because, as I mentioned, the, the arbitrary restrictions that they are imposing on the performance of Hajj and Umrah while they are indulging in concerts and all kinds of other uh, activities that are completely contrary to the teachings of Islam, Uh, including, incidentally, the Saudis are building uh, holiday resorts on the Red Sea coast uh, where they plan to uh, open uh, casinos and um, dance clubs and have... um, girls imported from all over the world, roaming around in bikinis, etc., and indulging in all kinds of other um, un-Islamic conduct. So maybe uh, maybe I the think...
0: Ibn Saud family wants to do that sort of thing within their own country instead of having to fly all over the world doing it, which is pretty much all they ever do.
1: That's correct, exactly. You see, a number of these um, uh, places that uh, they used to visit in the past, um, whether it was uh, Lebanon or, of course, the Saudis still uh, go to Paris and London and Monte
0: Carlo, Las Vegas, you name it.
1: Exactly, and, there's a Saudi and they, there. They go there and they they lose tons of money gambling, and they and, you know they people lock up the... their daughters. <laughs> exactly, they lock up their own daughters, but they themselves go and uh, indulge in all kind of um, uh, unbecoming conduct. And now they are saying, well, you know, instead of flying all over the place uh, over there, why don't we set up something, uh, you know, in the kingdom uh, and uh, have people come here. They can uh, let it all hang out. They can, you know, drink to their heart's content. They can gamble to their heart's content. And we'll make money off of them. And that's what they're doing. So I think they are basically forcing uh, the Muslim world, uh, especially those Muslims that are conscious of their Obligations and duties uh, that they should begin to uh, think uh, about uh, removing the Saudis from the control of the Hejaz and the administration of the affairs of Hajj and Umrah.
0: And one other factor you mentioned in the article is that as they essentially are are virtually shutting down these pilgrimages, they're inviting Israeli tourists to come and frolic in the kingdom and they're making friends with, with the Zionists at a time when the, you know, the Zionist behavior is even more atrocious uh, than in many other times, the Palestinians are, are suffering horribly. The Saudis obviously don't care, and they've joined the side of the Zionist Dajjal. And that, that seems like a another factor that could nudge uh, a lot of people across the Ummah into recognizing it's time to liberate the Hejaz. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, and, and what is... Um interesting to note is that uh, there are no formal diplomatic relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and the Zionist state of Israel, and yet uh, Israeli tourists are allowed to uh, go to the kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem Post itself reported this um, in October, uh, that uh, an Al-Al flight had uh, flown to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And uh, prior to that, a Saudi uh, airline flight had flown into Tel Aviv. And these flights have uh, now started. Uh, So it is interesting when one considers the fact that when there are two countries that do not have formal diplomatic relations that their citizens can visit each other's countries, uh, and yet uh, they they would uh, put restrictions on pilgrims. Uh, And at the same time, the fact that uh, the Zionist regime continues to perpetrate such terrible, terrible oppression on the Palestinian people, uh, it is not hidden from anybody. It is very well documented. Uh, Amnesty International has documented the Israeli atrocities and oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, Human Rights Watch has done that. And an Israeli human rights organization by the name of Beth Salem has, uh, on several occasions, uh, documented what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, to the civilian population of Palestine, the night raids, the incarceration of Palestinians. There are approximately 4,500 Palestinian political prisoners, of which uh, there are 454 women and more than 200 children. Some of these children are as young as eight, nine years old, and they are horribly mistreated in Israeli prisons. They are tortured. They are threatened with uh, sexual violence and other kinds of physical violence, and these are all very well documented. This is not something uh, that that is hidden, and this is even noted by uh, other uh, groups. so Even the UN has has brought these things to attention. The UN Rapporteur on Palestine, um, Professor Michael Link, is a Canadian professor, a highly respected international human rights, uh, international law professor uh, here in Canada. Uh, he has documented these things. All of these things are very well known. And, and yet here we have a situation whereby the Saudi regime that claims, that assumes or claims that it is the leader of the Muslim world, and yet it has not only abandoned the Palestinian people, but it is actually it has actually aligned itself with the oppressors and occupiers of the Palestinian people and upon whom the occupiers are imposing these horrific crimes, very well-documented horrific crimes. And the Saudis have absolutely, uh, they do not care as to what happens to the Palestinian people. So that's the other aspect which should spur Muslims to begin to think seriously about uh, getting rid of the Saudis and uh, pushing them back to uh, the region Najad from which they erupted back in 1744. And although uh, in their first attempt they were pushed back when the Ottomans were powerful, their uh, governor at the time was able to push them back, but then they erupted back again in the early 20th century and with the help of the British, Uh, they occupied the Hijaz. I also want to mention that uh, it was in fact the British Consul General in Jeddah in the year 1902 who had sent a message to the British Foreign Office in London pointing out that Muslims get together for Hajj and Umrah uh, and uh, non-Muslims are not allowed to go into Mecca and Medina And so he proposed that uh, we should uh, perhaps install a British uh, friendly agent as ruler of this place so that we would be uh, aware of what is discussed uh, at the time of Hajj and Umrah. Uh, Otherwise, it would be to the detriment of the interests of the British. So this was something that was proposed by the British Consul General in Jeddah, in 1902, and then soon thereafter, uh, the British started to uh, finance uh, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud. In fact, there are, in the British Parliament, in their records, in 1922, uh, the the British colonial secretary at that time, this notorious man by the name of Winston Churchill, he was asked in the House of Commons as to why Britain was paying two people or two leaders one was uh, Abdulaziz ibn Saud and the other was the Sharif uh, Hussein of Makkah, the great grandfather of the present ruler of Jordan, as to why Britain was paying both of them. And Churchill said, Well, Britain is getting money for its uh, value for its money. They are both our agents. They are doing what we want them to do. This is on record, not hidden. It's available. Uh, in fact, uh, I've mentioned this in one of my books with references to exactly. Uh, what uh, the British were doing. And we know that uh, the Saudi family was propped up by the British. They were British agents. And, of course, once uh, Britain lost its uh, power, then the Saudis became agents of uh, the American empire, uh, uh, you know, American Zionist empire, and they are still their agents to this day.
0: And and every now and then, even the devil tells the truth. And when Bin Shaitan said that uh, when, when he was being accused of having sponsored radical Islam and Al Qaeda and so on and so forth, he said, "Oh, come on, you—it was—it was you guys. It was—it was, it was uh, you know you Americans who made us do that. It was uh, part of your plan, not ours. We have no use for Islam of any kind, basically. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, um, but that's what that family's been doing for a very long time. Well, thank you so much, Zafar Bangash. I appreciate your uh, fearless uh, truth-speaking about this and other matters and your great work at Crescent International. So uh, God bless, uh, barakallahu feek, and keep it up.
1: Thank you very much, Kevin. Take
0: okay. care. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Zafar Bangash of, of the Crescent International, International Magazine, a magazine, uh, leading public affairs publication, publication of, of the Islamic Ummah. Let's uh, come, we're, we're coming to uh, the midpoint of the second hour of the show, and we'll go to another uh, of my favorite Canadian Muslims, and that's Eric Wahlberg. He has been published in the Crescent International a few times, among many other places. He used to write for Al-Ahram in Egypt, and he's got a long list of terrific books out. Um, let's see, Islamic Resistance to Imperialism is one. The uh, Canada-Israel Nexus is I think the most recent, and he uh, also just uh, recently published a terrific piece on Afghanistan called "The Afghan Emirates Challenge to the World," and I think we have him on. I hear some noise. I hope that's Eric. Eric, yes, are you there?
2: Hello, hey, hello.
0: Kevin. Hey, good to have you. How are you? Good, good. So the uh, <laughs> suddenly Afghanistan after this Saigon moment, except it wasn't a Saigon moment. It was infinitely worse than Saigon, uh, at least for the Americans. Happened in August, and suddenly. Afghanistan has fallen out of the news with the exception of occasional page 17 articles in the New York Times or whatever, uh, telling us that the poor women of Afghanistan are having a hard time Well, the, the rich and middle class uh westernized uh point zero 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 one percent of the women of afghanistan are having a really hard time now since the americans left and stopped uh, bombing them and their families to smithereens but that's about all we ever hear now so uh, i noticed that you uh you uh mentioned a few uh truths about afghanistan that we never hear in the western media well uh where would you like me to begin <laughs> <laughs> Where do we? Well, we could start with that woman question, which I, I was actually yes. discussing a little bit in the first hour with Alan Zabrowski. We were wow. sort of, you know, he was joking about the uh, the four wives thing and things like that and saying that Mona Sheikh, my uh, foul mouthed uh, Muslim comedian guest from a few weeks ago who screamed uh, foul language at me for the full hour because I wasn't vaccinated, uh, was a terrible Ooh. example of Muslim womanhood. And made it turned almost turned him into an Islamophobe. (laughs) Uh, So so the woman question, Um, we apparently failed to liberate the women of Afghanistan after murdering a few million. Uh, So (laughs) is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I'd like to uh,
2: uh, urge or, or suggest that anyone's interested in what's really making Afghanistan tick you should uh, get a hold of this uh, it's a very good book uh, by uh, by by an in indian i believe he's not pakistani if i'm I, i'm i'm not quite sure I, I i really don't see i don't differentiate india and pakistan really there's uh, wonderful muslims in both places and uh, they uh, i mean the kashmir is a serious problem but uh uh this gopal gopal he's definitely that gopal is a be a hindu name so his book is uh no good men for the among the living is what it's called anand gopal and uh, he uh he is an indian and he but he also writes for new york times he's an international writer and he uh Decided to learn uh, Pasht, uh, not Pashtun. He learned Dari. I, I'm pretty sure. I uh, maybe he learned both. But he, and then he went and he he got right in with the Taliban. This idea that you couldn't uh, find out what's really going on. Uh, there was a Canadian. He was an embedded
0: uh, embedded journalist with the Taliban.
2: <laughs> he was a, a, a free thinker and looking for the truth he wasn't really i mean he he was very close to i'm sure being uh kidnapped or or murdered but he when you're open and uh when you speak language and you show that you're you're uh, uh interested genuinely uh you're treated well uh, i'm uh, any of the people that i uh, writers that i 've uh, there 's various writers that have been with the Taliban and they came out uh, um, you know it was rough, but they had uh, came out with great respect for them and really uh, I was reading these books over the last ten years, and I came quite clear to my mind the taliban i i 've always been uh, sure that they would uh, win uh, eventually win or that they would triumph over Over the invaders, Uh, it seems to me it was quite clear, this idea that uh, there was a way of salvaging uh, the occupation and creating a a model state. That was a a complete figment. So, Gopal, G-O-P-A-L. I I think you I got it from the library. I'm sure it's uh, available. And uh, he uh, highlights three uh, people that he spent 10 years uh, off and on meeting with them. And uh, though if for the women's question, uh, he met this incredible woman. That oh wow, Hila Uh And uh, I'll just give you a, a, a recap because of course my background is not originally as Muslim. I I, I started as a communist and I was supportive. I mean grudgingly or un, unhappily supportive of the Soviet attempt to uh, create a secular socialist society. And it could have, it might have, it could have worked if the U.S. hadn't been uh, uh, feeding the uh, uh, mujahideen, the uh, rebels, uh, uh, with all the arms that they could uh, possibly want and all the dollars. So, that uh, you see, the Soviets um, in the 1920s, they uh, they didn't get as far as Afghanistan. It was never part of the Russian Empire, so they didn't. Uh, They were never expansionists. They weren't trying to take over uh, their countries. They were uh, trying to establish uh, socialism within the old empire. And uh, they did that successfully in all the stands, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. And uh, uh, they got rid of the hijab. It was hard, but they did it. And uh, they had their mujahideen for about 10 years after the revolution. There were still Bandits, as they called them in the mountains, and they eventually, because there was no, the British Empire uh, was already uh, in its last legs. They, the, the British didn't really uh, try to uh, uh, un- undermine uh, what was going on in the stands. So uh, they, they were able to stabilize the socialist uh, government, and all of those, I, I lived there, I lived in Uzbekistan 12 years and it was wonderful. I, I just loved it. That's where I became a Muslim, and uh, Islam was always there. It was just under the Soviets, you just were quiet. You didn't. Uh,
0: well, but uh, didn't they strongly? Well, they 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 screw, They 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 broke up the tariqas, all the Muslim groups. They uh, messed with yes. and uh, demoted, uh, sometimes right. massacred ulama. They closed down or discouraged uh, attendance at mosques to the point that, it, you know, the, the, the mosques were hardly functioning, uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they, they were really very harshly and repressive. They survived.
2: Uh, and Islam is a very, uh, you, you know, if you try and put down Islam, it just springs back. So uh, I, I, I could see that uh, my Muslim friends in Uzbekistan, they They uh, like Karimov was the horrible last leader uh, that uh, he only died a few years ago. And uh, under them,
0: who boiled people in oil, right?
2: Yes. So my my uh, uh, good friend there, uh, Mahsud, he he, he, whose whose grandfather had been repressed and was shot in the 30s as but he was trying to uh, create a a Turkmenistan. He was he was definitely uh, involved in. So uh, in, in that kind of uh, uh, um, counter-revolutionary from the Soviet point of view. And so uh, m- my uh, friend, he said, and, and his mother, uh, who uh, was the daughter of, of his grandfather, uh, she, uh, uh, well, I, I won't go into a lot of the de- details, but my, my my friend said what you have, to, he said it was wrong to try and uh, uh, overthrow uh, what was happening and uh, he could understand. He didn't like it, but he he didn't have hard feelings. Uh, and uh, um, he was he said uh, when you have this horrible uh, 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 dictator like Karimov, this is long after the Soviets uh, Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, he said you just keep quiet and you bring up your children and you teach them teach them to be good Muslims. And eventually these these monsters will die, and uh, you can proceed then. So, anyway, I, I didn't want to get uh, too mm-hmm. far in that. So That's a uh, strategic Hila,
0: patience. Gila,
2: <laughs> um, uh, it, it was her name. She graduated from university in 1990, uh, and uh, she was uh, working on her master's, but then uh, she married her suitor, Muskinar, who was an idealist, and he was actually a communist. And uh, this is in 1990. So, this is, uh, you know, things are already. Uh, if you were looking to bail out you you were bailing out by 1990 but instead uh, he took his wife Hila when things were collapsing to his native uh, um, village which was in the southwest Uh, and uh, Khaz Uruzgan and uh, I mean it was hard for her because she's living in a village Uh, she had to wear a burqa and she couldn't go out without a male guardian. She so she was basically under house arrest. So it was not uh, not her ideal uh, situation. But she was a strong person. She was you know, and she uh, and and she actually liked the try. She was able to say that she appreciated the Taliban for putting down tribal practices. And this is something that uh, in the news we hear. Oh, tribal, tribal. They're going to do all sorts of horrible things to me. No, the Taliban are. Uh, sharia and they actually there was a, 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 they fought uh, against the uh, local tribal leaders that were trying to impose uh,
0: a very primitive uh, approach to women uh, because sharia yeah, and most people don't get this it's worth it's worth kind of repeating this slowly and stressing it for the western audience that these patriarchal traditions uh, that are often very harsh to women among others uh, are uh, actually uh, uh, restricted and, and opposed by Islamic traditions. Mm-hmm. So an yes. Islamic group like the Taliban actually is liberating people and right. women. It
2: liberated a- them from the tribal and it liberates them from the American occupiers because they were using these tribal leaders, these warlords, and they were just it was horrible when the uh, americans invaded so she was living uh, in under taliban rule for the last uh, uh, for actually uh, for uh, almost uh, 10 years for 8 years she was living before uh, uh, before 911 so she survived and she was helping local women it was difficult because uh, she would get uh, if she was caught outside, uh, I mean, she was always careful to abide by the rules. But uh, everyone saw her as uh, uh, this urban woman. And this, you know, this was seen as decadent and uh, trying to under, undermine the local tradition. So she faced hostility, but she also, the women liked her. And she was, uh, uh, because she uh, was uh, not able to teach at that time, uh, uh, she uh, uh, was able to get enough training that she could work as a midwife. So she then uh, uh, had the status in the village that the women were coming to her uh, and wanting to, uh, you know, uh, any kind of medicines she had, uh, whatever. Uh, and this is after in the, when the Americans uh, took over, too. She was a- actually able to get more medicines and she ended up uh, actually giving medicines to the Taliban. Uh, in through the early period 2002 2003 2004 uh, when they were starting to uh, um, re-activate uh, their quote-unquote sleeper cells she was actually well she was proposition not proposition but she was uh, something was left at the house uh, note saying we want medicines and uh, she thought well uh, I have these medicines and look at what this local warlord that uh, she was living under, John Muhammad Han, who was a crony of uh, Karzai and who uh, uh, who got her husband assassinated. So they didn't like him because he was uh, trying to help the people. He was a communist, but he was he was not a communist uh, um, loud, loudly. He was just working. Uh, as, uh, you know, as a a secular equivalent of of a good Muslim, I would say. And the Taliban left him alone. They, you know, they could have killed him. They knew who he was, but uh, they didn't touch him. And then uh, when he was assassinated uh, in uh, 2002, after that, she was alone. And you can't be alone in a village, uh, a woman. This is, you know, and she had four kids by then. Uh, two of whom were uh, almost killed by the Americans, but uh, they, uh, that's another long story. I suggest people, you know, you can read her story and it, it's absolutely riveting that this woman, what she put up with and that she was uh, even minded enough to say that the Taliban did good things. She was able to say that. And she, uh, when she saw the horrors that were happening under the Americans and the Taliban uh, secretly asked for medicines, She left medicines out uh, outside, uh, 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 you know, uh, outside her door and they would be gone the next day. And she was doing this to help them because she said, uh, you know, uh, her own son was almost uh, was by then 14. And uh, some of the Taliban were, you know, 14, 15 year old boys. And she said uh, she understood why they were fighting the Americans. She didn't send her son out <laughs> to fight with him. Actually, he almost died. So he was actually traumatized uh, by the Americans, but she did help them. And uh, uh, then she was able to, rather than get married off to her husband, her husband's brother, which is uh, actually within that's within Sharia, too. But uh, uh, I think uh, it depends on how you uh, how you uh, carry out Sharia. You can force or you can not. You know, it depends on. Uh, on who's uh, the uh, mullah, and she didn't want to marry her, her brother-in-law, so she uh, able she was able to convince him. She said, "I'll I'll take you to my husband's uh, chemist shop, and I'll give you all his money." So the brother-in-law said, "Oh well, okay." It was like two in the morning, and he said, "Why are you doing this now?" And she said, "We've got to hurry. Uh, you know, things and the Americans were coming back, and you know, people wanted to steal." So he came with her, and then when she got there, she just kept walking. After she gave him the money, she walked towards the base, which was just at the edge of the village. And she just, uh, when the Americans saw someone, uh, they flashed a light, and she shouted that uh, she was uh, in danger of her life, that the Taliban, she blamed it on the Taliban because she knew the Americans wouldn't understand if she said, you yeah, one of your warlords is trying to kill me. If she had said that, she, they would have just uh, ignored her. So she played into the American uh, line, which was the Taliban or the bad guys. So they accepted her. And then she eventually she eventually became a senator, probably the first senator, the woman sem- senator. And uh, I, I really would love to know more of her story. I presume she was evacuated uh, in August because when chaos is descending, you and you know you you've got to just go with the flow. So she would she I'm sure she left be, rather than uh, with her kids, and that she could come back. I'm sure she will come back. She's not one of I call them traitor, coward, whatevers. The the 130,000 people the Americans evacuated, 130,000. That's really you know that, that's uh,
0: amazing, isn't it? That's a lot of people say halfway amazing. around the world.
2: It's like the boat people, of course, in in Vietnam, uh, the 10 years uh, uh, of horror after the Americans left, when it was collapsing, uh, that was the boat people, probably the same number, I don't know, uh, uh, and a lot of them also ended up in the States, and of course, there's a wonderful Vietnamese mafia, of course, a lot of the people that left were uh, warlords, mafia, you know, uh, people that knew that they would be killed because... Uh, they were killing so many people under the Americans. So uh, I, I think it's really important to re uh, um, rephrase uh, what's going on, because we're 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 told, you know, these refugees and they're not really refugees. I would say they're just well, I guess they're refugees, it, 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 you, it depends on your definition of refugees,
0: but. Uh, uh, I, I'm think, sure they're, they're, you know, they're all different. There are a lot of different kinds of people among that group, possibly yes. including this Hila, Gila uh, Achakzai yeah, that you wrote whatever. about. And, and so her story is told in uh, in Gopal's book, Gopal's, No Good Men Among the Living. Right.
2: Yeah. No good men, which is a, which is an Afghan uh, saying, uh, uh, um, a Pashtun saying no good men among the living, no bad men among the dead. That's the uh, if you understand the meaning of that that you you uh you're always uh, dissing people that are alive and and complaining but then when they die oh uh, he was such a nice person and you know it, uh, this kind of of uh, so the uh, uh, really there are no good men uh, I guess even you could say everybody in the in this whole saga were bad in some way uh, that because there's so much violence and killing and Uh, But um, uh, that is something that that uh, impressed me. And also, so really, there was uh, almost no uh, education for these. uh, The the whole thing was that Pachomkin, you know, that expression, the Pachomkin
0: village of Afghan women's education It it was dotted with Pachomkin
2: villages and uh then and, and for the we-
0: listeners who don't know about that that's uh like a, a, a kind of a fake perfect village that's built a, it's it's all just a little hollywood facade to to show the in big big cheeses who were touring through there it was uh catherine
2: uh, the great she had, was famous for her she had her one of her lovers was Pachonkin. And he would build these little villages and she'd go out and pretend that she would. Well, this is like Marie Antoinette. I think she did the same sort of thing, too, with playing at being a happy peasant.
0: So. Right. uh, So so, so we have this whole cottage industry of taking money from the West and uh, building these, you know, fake uh, women's education institutes in Afghanistan.
2: So so that's really uh, uh, I think the. uh, uh, a good symbol of, of what the US was trying to do and um, uh, it's certainly uh, the, the Taliban have their have their work cut out for them now but I, I think that uh, I'm hopeful I, I, I really uh, there was some talk of border skirmishes with uh, Iran that's the way the West uh, media press uh, and the uh, Iranians said no there were no b- border skirmishes at all it was just You know, um, they're basically meeting for the first time, you know, these border officials and meeting with Taliban officials. And and of course, there's there's uh, I think how many there's several million. I think it's two million Afghans living in Iran and they earn money and they send that money back. A lot of the uh, uh, a lot of Afghans, that's their Mecca uh, or you could say are their their uh, pot of gold is if you can get across the border into Iran and work there, and then you can send money back, and you're safe. You don't, you know that you're safe, and uh, you, you're not in the crosshairs of of what's going on. So, so uh,
0: uh, Iran. Uh, really, I'll bet the CIA is trying to stir up some border skirmishes. Oh, of course. You know, uh, these uh, two the uh, Islamic sand. countries are are uh, that you know, not sand. that popular in Langley.
2: That Houthisan uh, ISIS whatever it was, uh, I think you. I don't know if it was you that told me, but it's pretty clear that uh, that was infiltrated. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, that bombing that happened at the airport that was uh, triggered by some kind of, you know, uh, uh, maybe not. It wasn't a CIA guy planning it, or was it? Plan. He was planning it, but he didn't carry it out. He got the. The so-called Hurasan, uh, 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 uh flunkies to to carry out that bombing. So, so yeah, the, de- the U.S. is definitely it's it does not want to see uh, a successful Islamic state. You know, it's 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 well, idea much of less Islamic two state. contiguous
0: ones. You know, well, not, does, imagine the nightmare of of Afghanistan. And Iran uh, being friendly to, you know, to, uh, a uh, kind of hardcore, uh, you know, so-called Sunni state and a supposed uh, Shia state. Actually, you know, that it's it's not quite that simple, but this this would uh, terrify them. They've been trying to contain Iran and prevent uh, Islamic governance from getting, growing up anywhere else for decades. And, and now they just lost Afghanistan. They must not be too happy about that.
2: Well, uh, I I, want to emphasize again that Iran really has an absolutely key role to play through all this. And from my experience with Iran, I know that they are not going to be pushy. They're going to be low key and they're going to just uh, be patient. They've been patient with the U.S. for 40 years. (laughs) Uh, So they, you know, they know how to take their time. And Uh, Actually, there was an article just in this last issue, or I don't know if it was in uh, Crescent or if it was, I I saw it um, on another site online, uh, by Tahir Mahmoud, if you uh, recognize that name. Uh, Read his articles. Uh, If you just Google his name, you can get, he's written some excellent stuff, and uh, he made the very important point, the Taliban victory, is a strong symbolic message that Washington's rivals are are not China or Russia, the, the regional powers, but under-equipped local <laughs> movements, you know, uh, unar- basically unarmed or, or with pitchforks and uh, Kalashnikovs. This is the real threat to the U.S. Around- of course, it always has been, really, You know how did Castro in Cuba? It was just you know a handful of guns and uh, lots of uh, lots of zeal, lots of belief. Uh, That's what you know the secular communist belief. Or uh, in the case of the Taliban, you have the uh, Sharia, you have the Quran, you have the belief. In, in Islam as the motive force. So so th- that's, uh,
0: you know, it's not uh, big. Churches, pitchforks, and Kalishnikovs. Don't forget the Kalashnikovs uh, <laughs> when you head for Washington, D.C. Well, I, I think we're at the end of the hour. Uh, thank you, Eric Wahlberg. It's always great talking with you. And your your latest uh, article looking at those two books in Afghanistan is uh, first rate as always. So keep up the good work. Okay. All right. Thanks, Bye-bye. Eric. Bye. That's Eric Wahlberg. On the web at Eric Wahlberg.com. I'm Kevin Durr at TruthJihad.com, signing off on my Revolution Radio live radio show. We do this every Friday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern. And find all more at TruthJihad.com. Click on the radio link. Thanks for
1: listening. See you next time.